Chapter Fifteen of the Witch of Salem. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Becky Cook. The Witch of Salem by John R. Music. Chapter Fifteen. Your mother, a witch. Tis a bleak, wild, but green and bright, in the summer warmth and the midday light. There's the hum of the bee, and the chirp of the wren, and the dash of the brook from the older glen. There's the sound of the bell from the scattered flock, and the shade for the beach lies cool on the rock. And fresh from the west is the free wind's breath. There's nothing here that speaks of death. Bryant Shortly after the arrest and incarceration of goodwife nurse, Rev. Deodat Lawson, an eminent Boston divine, came to Salem Village. All land travel at that time was on horseback. He lodged at the house of Nathaniel Ingersoll, near the home of the minister of Mr. Paris. The appearance of a foreigner in the village was at once the signal for making a new convert, and the afflicted put themselves on exhibition to convince him that evil spirits were abroad. He had been but a short time at the house of Ingersoll, when Captain Walcott's daughter, Mary, came to see him and speak with him. She greeted him with a smile, and hoped he had had a pleasant journey. It was now growing late, and she stood in the door bidding all good evening, preparatory to going home. Suddenly the girl gave utterance to a wild shriek, and leaped into the house, holding her wrist in her left hand. "'What is the matter?' asked Mr. Lawson. "'I am bitten on the wrist,' she cried. "'Surely you cannot be bitten, for I have seen nothing to bite you.' "'Nevertheless I am bitten. It is that witch that hath bitten me.' The candle had been burning all the while in the apartment and Mr. Lawson knew that no one could have been in the room without his knowledge. "'Someone hath grievously bitten me,' the girl sobbed. Mr. Lawson seized the candle, and, holding it to her wrist, saw apparently the marks of teeth, both upper and lower set, on each side of her wrist. He was lost in wonder, and, placing the candle on the mantel, remarked, "'It is a mystery.' "'Yea, verily it is,' Lieutenant Ingersoll answered. But you have not seen the beginning of the wonders of witchcraft in this village. Satan surely hath been loosed for a little season. I have heard much of the sore afflictions of the children at the home of Mr. Paris, remarked Mr. Lawson. And they are sorely afflicted, as I can bear testimony. After tea we will walk over to his house. Mr. Lawson assented, and Mary Walcott was sent home. After an early tea, Mr. Lawson went to the parsonage, but was but a short distance. Mr. Paris met them at the door. His white, cadaverous face, prominent cheekbones, aquiline nose, piercing eyes, and wild, disheveled hair gave him a strange, weird appearance. He greeted Reverend Mr. Lawson warmly, and thanked him for coming all the way from Boston to preach for him next Lord's Day. "'I am so sorely tried with many afflictions that—' I cannot compose my mind for sermonizing. I have heard somewhat of the afflictions and troubles that beset you, Reverend Deodat Lawson answered. Verily, you cannot have heard more than has occurred. I am aligned, misunderstood, and beset everywhere by the enemies of God. Meet it with prayer and humiliation, answered Mr. Lawson. I do, I do, and verily, the Lord is making my enemies my footstool. Many are already in prison and many more will yet go to the gallows. Pastor gnashed his teeth in silent rage, while his eyes gleamed with hate. "'How were the afflicted children?' asked Mr. Lawson. "'No better. 
Abigail, come hither. Abigail Williams, the niece of the pastor, came from the adjoining room. She was a girl of twelve, with a fair face but cunning eyes, which deprived her of the innocence of childhood. Mr. Lawson at once entered into conversation with her, but had not proceeded far when she uttered a shriek and, turning her face to the ceiling, whirled about in a circle, while her eyes, rolling back in her head, snapped like flashes of light. Her mouth was drawn to the left side of her face, and her whole frame convulsively jerked till she fell to the floor, where she writhed and struggled, and blood-stained froth issued from her mouth, while Mr. Lawson gazed upon her appalled. Then she sprang to her feet, and hurried violently to and fro through the room, in spite of the efforts to hold her. Sometimes she made motions as if she would fly, reaching her arms up as high as she could, and bringing them down at her side, crying, Wish! 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 Presently she began talking in a strange, hysterical, and half-inaudible manner. There is good wife nurse! she cried. Do you not see her? Why, there she stands! And the girl pointed to a corner of the room that was vacant. Her eyes seemed riveted on some object that kept moving about, and after a short silence Abigail Williams said, "'There! She is offering me the book to sign! I won't take it, goody nurse! I won't! I won't! I won't take it! I do not know what the book it is. I am sure it is not God's book. It is the devil's book, for aught I know!' Then she remained a moment with her eyes closed and arms folded across her breast after which she ran to the fire and began to throw firebrands about the house and run into the fireplace against the back of the wall as if she would go up the chimney they caught hold of her and pulled her out it is nothing uncommon mr paris explained in other fits the children have sought to throw themselves into the fire mr lawson did not tarry long at the house of the pastor but returned to the home of lieutenant ingersoll when sunday came mr lawson went to the church to preach Several of the afflicted people were at meeting, for it was thought proper that the afflicted should be in the house of God. So long as one was able to go to church, they were taken, regardless of any mental affliction they might have. Mrs. Pope, Goodwife Bibber, Abigail Williams, Mary Walcott, Mary Lewis, and Dr. Griggs's maid, all of whom were persons bewitched, are reported by reliable historians as being present at this Lord's Day service. There was also present Goodwife Corey and who was subsequently arrested for a witch. While at prayer Mr. Lawson was interrupted by shrieks and struggles on the part of the afflicted, and a voice near said, Fits. He kept on praying for the Lord to relieve them of their torments, while Charles Stevens, who was in the house, declared that a whip would relieve them. After the prayer a psalm was sung, as usual, and then Abigail Williams, turning to the preacher, said in a loud, chorus voice, Now stand up and name your text. After he had named his text, she said, It is a long text. He had scarcely begun his sermon, when Mrs. Pope, one of the afflicted women, bawled out, Now there is enough of that! These mad people ought to be kept away from the house of worship, declared Charles Stevens to a neighbor. Reverend Mr. Lawson, unaccustomed to these interruptions, was greatly annoyed, and had to pause frequently in his sermon. Goodwife Corey was present at the time, and Abigail Williams, in the midst of the sermon, cried out, "'Look! Look where goodwife Corey sits on the beam, suckling her yellow bird betwixt her fingers!' At this, Anne Putnam, the daughter of Thomas Putnam, said, "'There is a yellow bird sitting on Mr. Lawson's hat, where it hangs on the pin in the pulpit!' Those who sat nearest the girls tried to restrain them from speaking aloud, but it was in vain, for despite all precaution they would occasionally bird out some ridiculous nonsense which the people attributed to the results of witchcraft. 
Charles Stevens, what say you now that your eyes have witnessed these abominations? said John Bly. I say, if I had my way, I would cure them, answered the youth. How would you, pray? Bly asked, with a good whip about their shoulders. Beware, Charles Stevens, how you speak so lightly of these afflictions, lest you bring on yourself the same condemnation of those on Witch's Hill. There are some spirits so bold that they overawe and intimidate even an enraged populace. Martin Luther's very audacity saved him on more than one occasion, and something like the same spirit enabled Charles Stevens to overcome or overawe the deluded populace of Salem. A few days after the execution of Goody Nurse, he was passing the meeting-house, when he was accosted by the West Indian Negro John. "'You not believe in witches?' said John. "'No.' "'Goody Nurse brought me de book.' "'John, I believe you lied. I believe you have perjured yourself and sent your soul to endless torment,' answered Charles Stevens. John was a cunning rascal, and thought to give him a proof positive of the powers of witchcraft. He fell down in a fit, and Charles applied his cane to him until he ran howling away effectually cured, while Charles, disgusted with the black-skinned African, left him and hurried out of the village. Charles Stevens' favorite walk was across the brook and among the great old oak trees beyond. His mind was greatly harassed, and, like all great minds when perplexed, sought solitude. He went farther and farther into the woods and sat down upon a large stone. The recent trial of Goody Nurse— her conviction and execution moved his soul. He could not understand how people, civilized and enlightened, could be so deceived by what to him was so apparent. Charles knew that all were not dishonest in their belief. He even believed that some of the actors in this tragedy were sincere, but had been over-persuaded by Mr. Peirce, whom he set down as the prime mover in it all. He sat for a long time, much longer than he supposed, reflecting on the past and planning for the future, when he was startled by hearing footsteps coming toward him. He raised his head and saw a young Indian brave, with his blanket wrapped about his shoulders, carrying a bow in his hand. He was ornamented with a bunch of feathers, and his face was painted with all the gorgeous hues of savage barbaric art. He recognized Charles Stevens, for, advancing toward him with a smile, he extended his hand, saying, "'My white brother is not happy. What has made him sad?' The Indian was a good judge of human character, and in the face of the young white man he read a look of sorrow. "'The white men of Salem are wicked, Orcus,' said Charles. "'Not only are they wicked to their red brothers, but to their white brothers as well. They have taken the old and helpless, the weak and forlorn, and put them to death.' The young savage folded his arms across his massive chest and stood for a long time in silence. His eyes were upon the ground and his stolid features were without show of emotion. His people had suffered wrongs at the hands of the right men, but in this one he had ever found an earnest true friend. There existed between Charles and the brave bond of brotherhood as enduring as life. The young chief inquired what had been done at the village, and Charles proceeded to tell him all, in as few words as possible, of the arrest trial and execution of Goody Nurse and the others. When he had completed the terrible story, the young chief drew his blanket about his shoulders and said, I am your friend, and if your white brothers prove false, remember, your red brother will be true. I believe you, Oricus. I have shown one white brother through the paths, away from his enemies, and you will always find Oricus in his forest home ready to befriend you. The time may come when I will need your aid, said Charles Stevens. After a long interview, he rose and started home. 
He was near the great bridge which spanned the brook, when he suddenly came upon a tall, powerful man, whose sallow face and cavalier-like manner showed him to be a citizen of the southern colonies. Charles instantly recognized him as Mr. Joel Martin, the man whom he had seen on that night with Mr. Paris, Bly, and Louder, coming to arrest Cora's father. "'You are Charles Stevens?' the Virginian said, halting before the youth. "'I have no desire to deny my name, for it is that of an honest man. I am Charles Stevens.' he answered. "'Do you know who I am?' "'I suspect you are one whom I saw at my house, though your name I have not learned. I am Joe Martin, and by profession an overseer on a Virginia plantation. There were but two of us, my brother and I. He was an overseer of an enjoining plantation, when one day a slave escaped. He pursued him, and was slain.' "'I have heard the story,' interrupted Charles. "'You have, and from his own lips?' "'I have, and I do not blame the man who is seeking liberty. He was a white man, as you yourself are. He had committed no crime, save that he was arrested as one of Monmouth's insurgents, and had been captured while in the ranks of the rebel.' Martin's eyes flashed with fury, and, in a voice that was hoarse, he whispered, "'You aided him to escape, but it shall not avail.' I have for years followed on his trail, and I will not let go my hold on him until I have dragged him to the scaffold. No, the blood of my brother cries out for vengeance, and I will follow him day and night through the trackless forests until I have brought the renegade to justice. He cannot conceal himself so deep in the forest, he cannot hide himself among the savage tribes, nor burrow so deep in the earth but that I will find him. Charles Stevens turned away and was walking toward home when the tall Virginian, by a few quick strides, overtook him, and laying his hand on his shoulder, said, You do not care to hear these threats, but I have not done with you yet. Listen, I want to say more. If you seek to thwart me, I will kill you. Do you hear? I have no fear of you, Mr. Martin, cried Charles Stevens, turning on the tall, swarthy southerner, a glance which made him quail. Your profession is brutality. You are a stranger to mercy, yet I will defy you. I fear you not, and, if you seek my life, you had better take heed for your own." Charles boldly walked away, leaving the discomforted Virginian to fume in rage alone. The shades of night were falling fast over the village of Salem, as Charles hurried homeward, and he was amazed as he came inside of the house to see a great throng of people going from the door. The young man quickened his pace, hardly knowing whether he was asleep or awake. A negro slave came running to him, crying, "'Massa! Massa! Massa!' "'What has happened?' asked Charles. "'Um, took him away. They took him off.' "'Who?' "'Your mother!' "'My mother! Oh, God!' Charles Stevens ran swift as a roebuck toward the crowd, which had now almost reached the jail. "'What does this mean?' he demanded of John Bly, whom he met near the jail. "'Your mother is a witch,' Bly answered. "'You lie!' cried Charles, and with one swift, sure blow he laid the slanderer senseless at his feet. "'Hold, Charles Stevens, hold! Be not rash, or she may fare worse,' whispered a kind voice at his side, and turning, he saw the sad face of John Nurse. He had drunk the bitter cup to its dregs and could advise. The world seemed swimming before the eyes of Charles Stevens. 
he tried to rush to that throng, whom he saw dragging both his mother and Cora Waters to the jail, but in vain. His feet refused to carry him. He strove to utter an outcry, but his voice failed, and all became darkness. End of chapter 15